0: Hi, my name's Henry. By the way, my mom is working for Birth Monopoly. I have a secret that I can't tell anybody. What I know about Birth Monopoly is not very much. This is Birth Aloud Radio with Kristen Piscucci. Today on Birth Aloud Radio, we are talking to a nurse... Doula, certified lactation counselor and mom in Southern California who witnessed something on the job that she described as assault. And when she reported it, she was not
1: well received,
0: not well received. Yeah. And we'll, we'll go into those details. I did. I just want to start out by saying that this is a really big deal. I have spoken with, I don't know how many hundreds of women and birthing people who have described assaults and everybody always wants to know, you know, what was the nurse doing? And when I speak to nurses behind the scenes, they frequently describe having their hands tied and, you know, I would lose my job if I said anything about what I see. And I'm very traumatized by what I see on a daily basis, but, you know, I've got mouths to feed, I've got a mortgage to pay and- feel like the best thing I can do is kind of advocate on the down low. And hopefully we're coming to a point where it's gonna be more acceptable and more common for people to outright advocate rather than having to do it in sneaky ways that actually don't change the fundamentals of this system. So welcome to Brittany, which is not her real name, but that's what we're gonna be calling her. Brittany, thank you very much for being so brave. I think you know this is a really big deal to be talking about something like this publicly.
1: Thank you. I um, I I've been watching you know patients and or women who have been coming forward, and how could how can we not? But like you said, it's it's very easy to be also a secondary victim of the system. You know our institutionalized birth practices, all tied up in our very complex and truly our our for-profit healthcare system it plays a big part in it
0: yeah yeah so can you tell us what happened and and actually let me just set it up by saying that you had started at a new facility which was a university affiliated facility yes. and so you were on like an like a mandatory probation period Correct. as a as a new employee there that plays into the story a little bit so so okay. tell us tell us what happened
1: just like you said Kristen, i uh, was brand new to this facility there's a mandatory new employee 90-day probation so even though you know a facility may have union protection you are not protected by the union until you pass that probation anytime during that probation you're considered an at will employee Uh, they don't need a reason to fire you within my first week at this facility um as a i was hired as a labor and delivery nurse with the intention to also cross-train and postpartum to this facility as well, but my main job was going to be labor and delivery. I had a preceptor for some time as I oriented to this facility. During one of the very first births, I participated in some patient care with and observed. My preceptor was the primary nurse and I was assisting uh, you know, with documentation, patient care as appropriate.
0: This particular patient, And obviously, we have to be careful with details because of privacy concerns.
1: So I'm not going to share any personal information or identifying information, but there are some important kind of clinical aspects that would not identify this mother that I think are pertinent to, to the background, especially for maybe those of us who have gone through a hospital birth or are educated on some of the birth practices. This woman had had her waters break, so naturally she... into the hospital as we often tell women to do um, because there can be some concerns sometimes when the water breaks if labor doesn't start we just like you to check in so this woman had come in labor hadn't started her i did not admit her i came on after she had already been admitted her provider and her had decided to go through with a pitocin induction or augmentation depending on how you want to look at it because her waters had broken but for pitocin to be Started to induce contractions, hopefully, and get some active labor going. Pitocin had been started. There's lots of different practices with uh, pitocin inductions and augmentations, as far as how aggressive or how patient providers um, want to be with administration. She, in my clinical opinion, went through on the more aggressive side. You know, this they uh, were trying to really get labor started, so. She had a higher dose. This uh, woman had hoped to go without an epidural for her birth before her waters were broken, before this kind of birth story had changed for her. However, she (laughs) ended up getting all the way to complete cervical dilation without an epidural. She began the second stage of labor, which we often call pushing time. Some providers will encourage pushing the minute dilation is complete, and some will, you know, I use the word allow loosely, but uh, allow you to labor down. So keep allowing the contractions to do their job. You know, the contractions dilated you, they can also help push the baby down the station, you know, crowning. This provider did not want to labor down. Again, she did not have an epidural, so she began pushing as soon as she was complete. She pushed for about two and a half hours. This was directed closed glottis, sustained pushing. Um, The provider was called when the baby was crowning, he was somewhat delayed. The provider comes in, gowns up, sits down, and it is very common practice for perennial massage to take place at this point when the provider enters the room, Um, especially if if it's an OB. Uh, It's just a common practice to insert one hand and kind of rub down and put some pressure down towards the anus as the baby's head is there, with the intention to help stretch rather than allowing baby to kind of stretch as the contractions push baby out. So this provider is providing what we call perineal massage um, with some mineral oil with one of his hands, at which point he's been doing this for about maybe four or five strokes. He takes his other hand, grabs the perineum like a piece of paper and rips down towards the anus. The head emerges immediately The baby is placed on the mom's chest. The cord is clamped, you know, typical newborn care and assessment happens at that point. The provider is kind of looking around the vagina. You know, the parents are focused on the baby at this point. um, I'm staring (laughs) at what the provider has done. And I kind of take a quick glance around the room. There are a few shocked glances and some rolled eyes by the other nurses present, including my preceptor and the nurses who are there to what we call catch the baby or assess the baby.
0: Did the mom react when that happened?
1: Great question, I, I get so focused on what I saw, it honestly starts to play over and over. Um, that was the first time I heard her make a sound the entire birth, she screamed uh, very loudly. Um, you know, and then she was focused on her baby, thank goodness, after that. Um, he then inserts his finger into the anus and states, I'm just checking to see if baby tore you all the way through. At which point he begins repair. I don't honestly think he even noticed that there wasn't an epidural pump running, because my preceptor at that point handed him some lidocaine, um, so he could continue the repair with some pain management besides the skin-to-skin and you know bonding time with baby, which is very helpful for many moms. But uh, you know we have analgesics for a reason. So he continues her repair. We continue with recovery some breastfeeding assistance. And at some point I leave the room. She you know, has another nurse in there with her and I go out to the station. Uh, there isn't much talking going on. The provider's you know, typing up notes. People are kind of looking at each other. It feels tense and awkward among the nurses. The provider seems rather oblivious, he leaves the unit. And what are you oh. feeling
0: and thinking at that point?
1: A pretty just shock, numbness, still shock. I don't think the horror of it really set in yet, Uh, but beyond that initial gut reaction, and it was a very physical gut reaction, um, seeing that, especially having given birth, (laughs) and knowing what that area can feel like before, during, after. um, There was no asking. It's common practice for us to write on our consents, possible episiotomy. But that, in my mind, isn't an episiotomy or a standard of care procedure. I can find it nowhere with ACOG, which is, you know, an obstetrician's governing body. I had honestly never heard of it before. And I have been a doula and birth advocate and nurse for some time. I've heard of the other assaults. I don't want to say minor assaults, but because they are all not minor when we're talking about such a powerful
0: and vulnerable experience. Yeah, it's not minor when it's your vagina. It's not. It's not.
1: And, you know, I also want to point out there was no indication of any maternal or fetal distress at that point. Baby had been descending beautifully. The provider did not indicate that there were any signs of distress. And from a nursing point of view, I could not identify any signs of distress for either either of the patients, uh, the mom or the baby. So, following the incident, after recovery is almost complete, you know, we transferred to postpartum care. It was at that point. I was in the room alone with the patient, and um, the patient did ask about any perineal trauma. I um, very objectively stated what had happened, which felt a little dirty to do. I felt like I was normalizing it. Uh, what,
0: what, ex- what did you say exactly?
1: Sure. I told her that her provider had chosen to manually tear the perineum, which um, is often done to expedite delivery. And I told her that anytime there's any perineal trauma, you know, we ha- there are some risks of complications during the postpartum period and beyond. If she has any questions, she should speak to her provider. There are also pelvic physical therapists out there, you know, and that's not just for severe perineal trauma. It's, it's hard <laughs> to carry baby to term and to give childbirth vaginally on all that muscles. It, it's really indicated at any point, but the, um, in her case, I felt it would be appropriate to specifically mention that. And she was receptive and said, thank you. So just to be
0: clear, she asked you if she had torn and then you were just kind of stuck with, wow, how do I answer that question? What do I say?
1: Exactly. And I was
0: alone in the room. And
1: at this, at this point, I um, am grateful that I was alone in the room. Now knowing what the other reactions uh, would have been if another nurse had been in the room, I feel like I would have been stopped from being honest with her. And I say that because after I exited the room, I did uh, seek out my preceptor and I had let her know, you know, that the patient had asked about that and that I had told her. And she at that point said, um, well, we walked back to the station. At that point, the clinical manager was also there. Uh, whether she had been called to it because of the incident or just was there, um, she does try to be very present. So that is a possibility, I don't know. They both then talked to me about how it's not appropriate or within my scope to tell the patient that the provider had done that, Um, that it's, quote, not my place. I felt like I had to defend myself a little. I said I was very objective. I did refer her to the provider, but that I wanted to be very clear that I felt what I had witnessed was assaultive, that she did not consent to it, that it um, was an assault on her body, and I wanted to report it. And how do I do that? Um, (laughs) Because, you know, again, I was a brand new employee. And there's different chains of command at every facility. There's different policies for reporting. There's different ways to do that. There were some frowns at that point. Uh, And then I was walked through how to use the internal electronic reporting system to report the incident as um, harm to a patient. I wrote up the report, I stated what I had seen, what it, I had heard, and left it at that. I did not put any of my feelings in there. I felt it was a very objective report. However, I was told I needed it reviewed before I could submit it, and before submitting, I was told to remove the word assault. That was a judgment, and so I did, and I did not feel comfortable about that, so I edited it to show that the patient had not consented to this procedure. Honestly, it was very ironic because in hospitals, we're so concerned about skin integrity. Hospitals won't get reimbursed if they get, patients get a pressure ulcer or if something nicks them on the bed. And yet here we are having a woman torn open. And if I hadn't been so firm, I would have been discouraged from reporting it, I believe. Um, and it was clear that it was not going to be reported if I didn't.
0: And did you talk to some other nurses about it? I did following my report
1: I talked to some other nurses. I <laughs> found out that this, uh, I don't want to call it a procedure because it's not this assault. This assault actually has a name on the unit. It was called the doctor's name, Maneuver. So we can just say maybe Jones Maneuver. Uh, and it was specifically referring to
0: that. And So people that, knew that this was a thing that that doctor does. People knew. People knew this was a thing. Um, it had
1: a name. I even heard... You know somebody say at one point wait till you see the blank maneuver or Jones maneuver and then even later I found out that the Jones maneuver could be two things Um, it could be this very (laughs) disgusting assault on the vagina and the perineum or it could also be um, very aggressive fundal pressure to try to pop the baby out or to try to expel the placenta before it's ready can you Um,
0: describe what that means sure So
1: the uterus, the top of the uterus is called the fundus. Um, If you've had a baby, you've probably had a nurse push on that fundus during the postpartum period. It doesn't feel very good (laughs) all the time. The fundus is where we also measure contractions when you're in labor. When you put pressure on the fundus, when the baby is still in there, you risk a placental abruption. You're putting pressure on things inside. You don't know what's going on in there it's very risky to do so. It's a little less risky when you're doing it, when the baby has come out and the placenta is still in there. But
0: But essentially you're pushing something out of someone's body by like pushing down on their sort of the top of their abdomen.
1: Yes. There are some indications where we will do fundal pressure after the, you know, the baby comes out. This was not, this isn't, this is not what he is doing. So both, both of These Jones maneuvers are not safe, and there is no clinical evidence behind them. So, in talking to other nurses after this, finding out that it's still going on with other nurses, uh, this is a slower census hospital. So, the OB providers who are not contract, they're contracted with the hospitals, are not actually hospital employees. So, they are their own physician groups that are then contracted. They also work at other facilities. Um, This one in particular is very busy. (laughs) In talking to other nurses, there's just this culture of, well, it, it either is what it is, this is just how it works, um, or, you know, this very kind of cavalier attitude, well, you know, the vagina gets so torn up anyway during childbirth that does it really matter? I mean, how it gets done? Yes, yes, it does matter, <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's important to note that so much of the perineal trauma we see is Related to our birth practices, you know, lithotomy positions, directed pushing, this perineal massage during pushing.
0: And these aren't your opinions. This is actually no. supported by evidence.
1: It is, it is. It's pretty much how the rest of the world operates, barring some exceptions, but it, this is really unique to U.S. maternity care. These, uh, this expediting of labor and this really aggressive treatment of the vagina. When there's no clinical indication, you know, episiotomies. I would uh, almost call it hostile. Yes, yes. And maybe not with the intent, you know, obviously there's a long history of obstetrics and gynecology. It's very deep-seated in oppression of women and racism. However, it's no excuse to me that this culture continues. If this, in 2017 and 2018 in the United States, in Southern California, it's, it was so shocking to me. Knowing that there's evidence out there that we can do better, uh, the women deserve better, and we're we're failing. Uh, we're we're failing in our in our culture, our maternity care culture, and nurses either have their hands tied, you know, by institutional reporting policies, um, lateral violence when they do report, pressure from above from their clinical managers. Um, I've heard of obstetricians refusing to work with some nurses.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in kind of what their, what their reactions were and what your feeling was about sort of the culture, yes. the nursing culture there.
1: There, so many, there were so many good nurses there. It just,
0: like I talked to
1: one of the NICU nurses at one point who has witnessed it on multiple occasions. You know, bless her, she, ha- she has kids, but she had two C-sections. She doesn't know labor and delivery. She didn't know that it wasn't an ordained medical procedure. She doesn't know labor and delivery. She didn't know that if there was some clinical need, like if there was distress.
0: I'm sorry. Know. And just to clarify, you're saying that because she was a NICU nurse, not because she had had two C-sections, but because yeah. she was a NICU nurse.
1: Uh, when discussing it, she she made that clarification. You know, I didn't have vaginal deliveries. I was It was a planned C-section. I, uh, you know, didn't educate myself about vaginal deliveries. Um, so in her opinion, both were a factor. One, that she was not a labor and delivery nurse. And two, that she was not educated on vaginal delivery. <laughs> so it's just, there's a lot of breakdown in um, one, encouraging nurses to report the assaults they see, and two, standardizing how to go about reporting these incidents. And, and three, you know, what's the actual, what is the consequence to the OB? Because up to the date I left, there were none. There were none. Yeah.
0: Well, we need to go for a quick break. And when we come back, I want to hear about, more about what happened when you reported You're listening to WLXU 93.9 LP-FM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio, and this is Birth Aloud with Kristen Piscucci. And we're back with Brittany, the labor and delivery nurse from Southern California, who witnessed what she described as an assault on a patient when she reported it. She was, I, I guess I would say discouraged from reporting it and discouraged from talking on the unit about what she had seen in her perception of it. I did want to actually ask you a question before we go too much further. You know, I had talked to some other people about this incident. You and I have been speaking for months now. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of people said, well, you know, it was probably just, he was just being aggressive and it wasn't intentional. Can you just Tell us why you believe that it was an intentional act that happened of him purposely tearing this woman's genital area.
1: Yes. So again, I I think I'd mentioned earlier, you know, our high incidence of perineal trauma here. And part of that is positioning. Being in the bed on your back can reduce the opening by up to 30%. So we get a very taut perineum that's often, you know, not given the time to stretch either and providers will often insert several fingers and sort of stretch and pull down. And I've even seen um, providers take both hands and put both like two to three fingers from each hand on each side and pull open the perineum. And I have seen that cause lots of swelling and inflammation and actually reduce, (laughs) reduce the area the baby's gotta come out of. And then I have also seen that cause small tearing, whether they're small micro tears, multiple of them or one tear. This, this time, the way that the perineum was grabbed, pulled, taut, and then I can only describe it as holding up a piece of eight by 10 paper, pinching at the top, taking your other hand, pinching at the top and ripping down, just, just straight down, making, trying to make a tear completely straight down. That was the manner in which this was done. It wasn't that everything was being stretched. It was pinched, pulled, and ripped. Yeah. <laughs> it just um, doesn't feel very good to imagine that happening to you. I can only wonder how a man might feel if that very sensitive tissue was ripped open like that, um, you know, for his benefit, of, of course.
0: Well, it's funny. I mean, in all these all these interventions that we describe around this moment, it's like, we'll just go ahead and tear her in case she tears.
1: And I believe I mentioned that is some of the attitudes and some of the responses I've heard from some of the nurses. Well, you know, they're going to tear anyway. He might as well just do it and get the baby out.
0: Well, and I just want to state for the record, I know you know this and probably some of the people listening may or may not know that in some places they actually document like the integrity of that area because they care about it and they see it as a good health outcome. When a woman goes through birth and comes out intact down there with a healthy baby, that's an actual, a marker. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you'll definitely hear midwives say things like, you know, I've got a, you know, 90% intact perineum rate which means that these mothers are having babies without that, without that specific trauma of, you know, getting to the point where they tear or are torn or are cut.
1: Absolutely. And, and this is, um, that's a personal provider preference in the United States. Uh, as you may know from some of the recent publications coming out, this isn't new among the midwife community, but we have no national reporting system for maternal deaths. So as you can imagine, of course, there's no national reporting system for intact perineums. Uh, yeah,
0: nobody cares about no, vaginas. There's no
1: preference. And that is versus yeah. you know, countries like Sweden and the UK, who for years have been putting efforts into reducing their perineal trauma rate and are doing some wonderful things with their midwife protocols and have, in some cases, reduced their perineal trauma to 1% to 7%. That's incredible. Yeah, so they have a 93 to 99% intact rate that's with women with epidurals as well. Um, some of those studies, the 61% of participants had epidurals. It's almost like there's no value on anything except the baby lived, right? The baby's okay. And of course, that's extremely important to all of us mothers. And you can get us to do quite many things against the evidence if you say, well, there's a chance your baby could die. You know, as soon as you kind of <laughs> hear, well, there's, you know, this could affect your baby, they're going to they're gonna say do whatever you have to to do get the baby out. Um, so this this fear based and sort of one sided.
0: Well, to shit. me that's that's the that's the misogyny of it. It's yeah, it's part of we're gonna is- have the same outcome. We're gonna have a healthy baby whether or not whether we traumatize you, rip you, let you tear, treat your vagina like give you the daddy's um,
1: bitch up-
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, Or if we support you, minimize your trauma as best we can, really try to make sure there are as few complications as possible. So we could do either one of those things. And somehow we've got this big old gap that allows allows this culture where women go through, like, it's like the worst possible denominator of care instead of yeah. the best possible. And then as you know, when someone says, hey, what if we just treated women better? The responses are almost like blaming on the mother a lot of times. Like, You're well, she should, for wanting yeah, more. I was just going to say you should be grateful. And you hear yeah. that from care providers and you also hear that from, from other women. Absolutely. But, sorry to get off on a total tangent. Um, no, no, no. I sort of distracted you from your story.
1: Uh, the culture of misogyny. I mean, I had responses that, well, he brings in a lot of money to the hospital. <laughs> so we can't, so we need to protect his image rather than protect the integrity of the woman's body. I was literally told that. So yeah. So going back to the reporting, I, I did the internal reporting in the future. I, you know, once I was on my own, I enacted practices to protect the patient from assault. I would place my hand on the perineum with a, you know, a towel or a warm compress and say, I'll, <laughs> I'll support the perineum for you, doctor, and just not move my hand until last. Or in some cases, I would, if I was admitting the patient, I would make sure on their consent that it didn't say possible episiotomy.
0: On their you know, consent form, you're talking about?
1: On their consent form, yes. Uh, it's common practice. that they
0: would sign ahead of
1: time. Right, right. So, common practice uh, at many institutions is to write, you know, labor care, vaginal delivery with possible episiotomy and repair. We know from research studies that even putting that a possible episiotomy on there increases the rate of episiotomies just just by writing it on there, because keeping it off of the written consent is sort of a stopgap to make sure that a verbal consent is happening at the bedside when they're they're is a true clinical need for an episiotomy or a forcep delivery There are or a vacuum. There are definitely instances where we need those tools, but that doesn't negate the fact that they're vastly overused and used to assault women at the convenience of the provider, literally convenience. They have a tennis match, they have a dinner, they wanna go out of town, they have a trip plan, they, anything.
0: Now, are you saying that as things you've seen firsthand or just things you've heard from other people? Both. Both. Um, I've seen this
1: every shift. I see that. I see convenience chosen um, over quality and safety uh, very, very often. And in this case, you know, I I was never allowed to ask this doctor – why he had chosen to do that. In fact, I was discouraged from calling it assault when discussing it with other people um, or talking even with my manager about it. And again, going back to being on probation as a new employee, on my last day of probation, which was standard, I sat down, I was sat down with my clinical manager and a shift supervisor, charge nurse, whatever you want to call it, And they pulled out a paper and said uh, probation would be ending today normally, but they want to make sure I'm dependable. I'd had an absence, two absences, uh, one where I was sent home and one where I called in sick. um, And they just wanted to make sure I was a dependable employee. So they were going to extend my probation. I asked how long. They said another 90 days. And I asked for 30. And they said it was within their right to extend it however long they felt was necessary. And at that point I said thank you and I signed the paper because I need to a job. Um, I'm, <laughs> you know, I have kids, I have a mortgage. And, you know, like you mentioned at the very beginning, if, at least if I'm there, I can do what I can to protect patients, even though I fundamentally don't think that patients should have to be protected from their providers. Nurses should not be in a position where they feel they have to run interference or even lie on documentation so they can protect their patients from some of these assaults um, or again, convenience over quality care.
0: I can already see the eye rolls when you say something like that. Like, you know, how dare she? Of course, no nurse should be lying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's definitely not in your scope of practice, right? Like to to be interfering with, you know, so-called medical care. But um, I did just kind of want to make the point that they specifically directed you to lie about what you had seen.
1: They specifically directed me not to call it assault, and they specifically directed me not to tell patients when it was occurring to them. And they specifically encouraged me not to continue reporting it if I witnessed it again, as they were going to, quote, unquote, handle it internally. When I asked how, they said that they'd already spoken to him, that they the response was was in their... <laughs> their opinion quote unquote good because he was just you know it was from a good place he was just trying to save them from pushing for another 20 or 30 minutes but if that's you know not what we want he will quote unquote i'll just go back to cutting them open then so i want to give a little more backstory on this um some of this is going to be you know he, he said she said hearsay um from the unit um this provider in particular had been spoken to by, I am not sure who, either another OB, the hospital. I can probably safely make an assumption, say it was the hospital, because hospitals want to keep their episiotomy rates very low. It's a selling point, because we know that episiotomies are not indicated as often as they're being done. So this provider was spoken to because he had a abnormally high episiotomy rate, at which point I was told that's when this Jones maneuver Uh, started appearing that it wasn't something he had always been doing. He'd just been performing like a 90% episiotomy rate. It's just something ridiculous. So that's not an evidence-based number.
0: And we don't really know exactly what the the correct number is for, or the, you know, the ideal number is for episiotomies, but we know it's, it's not the majority of women. Thank you for listening. Brittany's story continues with part two on our next episode of Birth Allowed Radio. This has been Birth Allowed with Kristen Piscucci. If you'd like to reach me with questions or show ideas or anything else, you can email me at birthaloudradio at gmail.com. Thanks for being here with us. We'll be back every other Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLXU. We'll see you next time.